Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, when we think of American landmarks, uh, we think of things like the Lincoln Memorial, uh, Mount Rushmore. Um, but have you ever thought of American Catholic landmarks? You'd be surprised how many remarkable uh, moments of Catholic history are preserved uh, within America. My guest, Dr. Kevin Schmiesing, is the author of A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History, People and Places That Shaped the Church in the United States. Kevin uh, lectures on church history from Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology in Cincinnati, and also serves as Director of Research uh, at the Freedom and Virtue Institute. He served as a research fellow at the Axon Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty from 1999 to 2020, and he co-hosts the podcast Catholic History Trek on Spotify and YouTube. He's contributed uh, to Catholic World Report in Crisis Magazines. Well, Kevin, good to have you back. Thanks. Hi, Al. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, We've talked about this book before, but it's so rich, uh, and I think that I've I've often pointed out that when you read most books on American history, uh, Protestantism is, because it was so dominant, uh, especially in the 19th century, the worldview of evangelical Protestantism, that you may forget that Catholics were always very much an important minority within the American story, and we deserve a better integration into the general historical narrative. Normally, we're still left in uh, little insets uh, on the margins of history books. But uh, talk to me, your your field uh, is in this area of Catholic history. Uh, do you see much change coming in the way American historians are telling the American story? Yeah, the way you describe it is exactly my view. Um, Historically, there hasn't been as much integration as there should be between what you might call the American Catholic story and the broader American narrative. Um, I do think there has been change. Uh, There's still work to be done. This book project is part of that work, trying to bring an integration to to a broader audience. But um, it's... In a way, it's an offshoot of uh, the the more general project of the American historical profession over the last 30 or 40 years or so of bringing minority voices back into the historical discussion. Right, so m- right. Most commonly, this means, you know, African-Americans, Native Americans, other ethnic minority groups, but it can also mean religious minority groups. And, and Catholics, although a large minority over the course of American history— um, is still a religious minority or has been a religious minority yep. in American history. So in that sense, there's been increased openness to <clears throat> integrating the Catholic story into the broader American story. But I don't think that's trickled down so much uh, mm. to, to textbooks or, uh, you know, to high school American history classes, including Catholic high school American history classes. Um, and yeah. so, again, this book is is part of an effort to make that integration more widely understood. Well, one, if you tell people that um, uh, St. Augustine precedes Plymouth Rock <laughs> by, by a long shot, by a yes. long shot, people are shocked. <laughs> they always think when the U.S. starts with Plymouth Rock. Tell us about uh, the settlement of St. Augustine, how it yeah, was right. settled. That, and it's a great yeah. story. 
Yeah, that that's part of changing the narrative is really uh, creating new starting points. So, you know, we, we, I mean, we've seen this happen to go back, back to my earlier point uh, about, you know, bringing minorities back into the story. We've we've seen what I would call a wrong headed attempt to do this with the 1619. <laughs> exactly. Project, which attempted right. to, to bring the American story back, you know, to, to focus the entire American story on the narrative of slavery, on the institution of slavery, and to make everything kind of revolve around that. Uh, there is a, a kernel of truth. There's, there's something valid in that effort, but, but most of that, as I say, was wrongheaded and, uh, and uh, imbalanced uh, and, and sometimes outright inaccurate. But in any case, it is true that you know, there were things going on in the American context before the Pilgrims arrived in Massachusetts, uh, before the Declaration of Independence in 1776, um, and a lot of that is a Catholic story. If you look in particular um, at uh, the, the French activity, French Catholic activity in uh, the Great Lakes region, the Mississippi River Valley, uh, the, what is now the northeastern United States uh, and Canada. You look at Spanish Catholic activity in the really throughout the southern United States, but mm-hmm. especially in, in the American Southwest. Um, and part of that Spanish activity is, is St. Augustine, Florida, uh, which is uh, pretty generally recognized as the first American parish. If you look at the Basilica of St. Augustine today, uh, I believe it's on the website. In fact, it might even be the URL for the website. I'm not sure, but they call themselves the first parish. Um, <laughs> 1565, the colony wow. of St. Augustine's founded, and as elsewhere in the Spanish imperial world, when Spain came with its conquistadors and its soldiers and its explorers, it also came with its missionaries, and that certainly happened in St. Augustine. Uh, there have been Franciscans, uh, Franciscans first, also Jesuits, uh, working in the St. Augustine area, and it's, it's a long, complicated story, the whole story of the colony leading up uh, to uh, to the American part of it after you know after the United States sure. was founded in 1776, uh, but you have to you have to get the book and read the chapter to get the rest of the story. Right. But uh, but certainly that can be seen as as not only the start of the American narrative, but also the start of the American Catholic narrative. Yeah, yeah. I I just think it's amazing. Um, I I I don't know why uh, we don't um, spend. Well, I, I don't know why we don't insist on this. We're at a time in American history where minorities are are not shy about asking to be included, right? So right. it seems to me Catholics uh, can afford to do that as well. Um, now, you also we talk about St. Augustine as uh, settled in 1565 to begin with, and you mentioned that you know this is part of, of this. A strange relationship between missionaries and also conquistadors or uh, at least those forces that were looking for um, financial gain. What was the relationship like between those who come over from Spain for uh, gold uh, and those who came over from Spain for God? Yeah, it was definitely a, a fraught relationship. Uh, it was yeah. th- there were there were times when they were cooperative. Uh, this was the intention of the Spanish Crown was to bring the faith along with the broader Spanish culture and the and the and Spanish political rule and all of that was intended to to uh, to mesh and to to be part of a single project. Uh, and so there was cooperation, and uh, the Spanish government funded missionary activity and so forth, uh, and soldiers sometimes protected 
militarily protected uh, the work of the missions, but there was also a lot of tension and even sometimes outright conflict. Uh, you see this in St. Augustine. You especially see this uh, in the California situation, which is another chapter in the book, Chapter 4. I, I focus on Mission San Diego, but I tell the story of, of the California mission chain and, and, and St. Junipero Serra, mm-hmm. um, whom American Catholics have, have learned more about, I think, since he was canonized. There's been more attention paid to that. Um, and certainly Catholics in California probably know more about it than the rest of the country. But, that, you know, that's a big part of the American story as well. And read the life of, of, of Father Sarah, of St. Junipero Serra, um, and his successors and his collaborators in, in the mission, uh, constantly uh, fighting with, <laughs> with uh, the Spanish authorities, with the Spanish military, uh, because they don't necessarily have the same aims. They often don't have the same aims. Yeah. And the, 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 the uh, abuses of Spanish soldiers and political authorities often work to undo the uh, labors, the missionary labors, the evangelization labors of the friars who are working in in California. So it's a it's a difficult relationship. It was a necessary relationship given the context of the time, um, but uh, not always an entirely fruitful one. I'm just going to jump to a, another area of American history because by my own experience of it, I went many many years ago. I went down for the first time to the Abbey of Gethsemane, just outside of Bardstown, Kentucky. And uh, for retreat. And uh, I also did some driving around, and I was shocked to see Catholic marker after Catholic marker in that whole area. I had no idea when I went down there that uh, Bardstown, Kentucky, was at one time a, a, ma- a major Catholic hub. We don't think of Kentucky as a, as a place for Catholics. So <laughs> tell me about the, the settlement there. No, right. Kentucky is not known for its large Catholic population or dominant uh, Catholic culture. But you see these pockets, these enclaves of Catholics, and this is around the country. And I tell a number of these stories in this book. Another one would be rural Pennsylvania, not known for its Catholic culture. But there is a part of rural Pennsylvania, the Carrolltown, Loretto, Latrobe area, that is very Catholic and has been since the early 19th century. And so Bardstown is another one of those spots um, settled very early in our nation's history. Um, by Catholics coming from Maryland. Well, that's yet another chapter in yeah. chapter two. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I want to come meant, back you, to that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the Catholic Plymouth Rock. So a lot of Catholics settled in Maryland, and then a lot of Marylanders moved west across the Appalachians into Kentucky. And so some of those Marylanders were Catholics, and they established this little Catholic colony in Bardstown and the surrounding area. In fact, Bardstown, one of the earliest American dioceses, which is another surprise. Uh, When the second uh, round of Catholic dioceses was created in 1808, uh, the ones you might expect along the eastern seaboard, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, and then the fourth one, Bardstown, Kentucky, (laughs) on the the frontier. Uh, That has since been moved to Louisville. So the Archdiocese of Louisville is the successor of the Diocese of Bardstown. Um, but but that was one of the earliest dioceses and one of the early centers of Catholic life on the frontier. Now, why is um, St. Mary's City, Maryland called Catholic Plymouth Rock? Catholic Plymouth Rock is just my way of invoking kind of a, a, a familiar theme from American history. We think of Plymouth Rock, the landing of the pilgrims. We're all familiar with that story. Americans are familiar with that story, the, the first Thanksgiving and all that. Um, And so I call this the Catholic Plymouth Rock because this is the place in the British colonies. We've talked about 
the Spanish, we've talked about the French, but this was the place in the British colonies, the 13 colonies, where Catholics were most numerous and most uh, important. The colony of Maryland really founded as a haven for for religious freedom generally, but in particular for Catholics who at the time, we're talking about the early 17th century, Catholics were not welcome uh, generally in the British Empire, certainly not in the homeland in England. Um, And so the colony of Maryland was a kind of concession from the king. Here's a place where Catholics can enjoy religious freedom. It started out that way. It didn't turn out that way uh, throughout the rest of the 17th century. But again, that's a longer story that that I tell in that chapter. But uh, St. Mary's City, the the historic uh, place where uh, the Catholics first landed in Maryland and established this largely Catholic colony. Kevin, hold it there. We'll take a break. Continue the conversation. It's a just an outstanding book called A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History, People and Places That Shaped the Church in the United States by Dr. Kevin Schmeising. We'll be back. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Kevin Schmeising. He is uh, author of A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History, People and Places That Shaped the Church in the United States. And we've been looking over some, uh, again, some areas of the United States that are not, in most people's minds, associated with uh, Catholicism. I'd also like to to take a look at the anti-Catholicism that was fairly common in the 19th century, uh, the fear that Lyman Beecher spread that the uh, somehow the Pope had a conspiracy to uh, move to the Midwest. Uh, then there was the conspiracy surrounding the assassination of Lincoln. Was it just in the? Was it just part of the social ambiance uh, that Catholics were a dangerous people in the nineteenth century? Yeah, anti-Catholicism, a big theme in American history, Al, as you point out, uh, and it it, uh, it comes up in a number of these chapters. Um, it is, anti-Catholicism has just been an enduring, ineradicable strain in the American psyche, the culture, however you want to yeah. describe it. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, we, we already talked about how the Spanish and the French were in the area that we now call the United States. And so there was, um, you know, there was imperial conflict between the British Empire, which was associated with Protestantism, and the Catholic powers of Spain and France. So that played a role early on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the British Empire really defined American culture in many ways because the country grew out of the 13 colonies where, you know, where independence was initially declared and then achieved uh, from from Great Britain, and anti-Catholicism was kind of part and parcel of the British Empire, um, uh, you know, for reasons that I'm sure many listeners are familiar with the story of the English Reformation and Henry VIII and persecution of Catholics and all that. Mm-hmm. So that was part of it. And then later you had you know, massive Catholic immigration from from the Catholic nations of Europe uh, and also from the, from the South, from Mexico, Latin America, and so this brought in a huge population uh, of of people who were considered non-American or, or foreigners or alien to American life, 
who also happened to be Catholic. And so you have really tied together this uh, anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic sentiment uh, beginning in the, in the mid-19th century and then uh, lasting through the early 20th century. And then, of course, now, you know, anti-Catholicism has, has not died. I heard you talk, uh, you know, about the Dobbs decision and the reaction to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you well know, a lot of that has been quite explicitly anti-Catholic yeah. in nature. Catholic churches targeted with vandalism and so forth. Yeah. Um, and, and that's yet another permutation. That isn't anti-immigrant or it's not because of, uh, you know, because of historic British anti-Catholicism. This has to do with cultural issues and the fact that uh, uh, cultural and moral issues, the fact that the church uh, finds itself on the other side of, of uh, or on, on one side or, or other in, in the culture wars of the day. So there's a lot of different reasons for the anti-Catholicism, but one way or another, it, it seems to always uh, find its way through American history. Tell me a, a, what you can of the 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 alleged conspira- Catholic conspiracy to assassinate uh, Lincoln. I've seen stories that associate with the Jesuits, other stories that associate it with uh, Samuel Mudd and Mary Surratt. So tell me what you make of it. Yeah, right. So this is a classic case of, of an anti-Catholic conspiracy theory because there is a kernel of truth at the center of it, which yeah. is the fact that there were identifiable Roman Catholics who were involved in the conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln and and who were convicted for it, and some of them were executed for it, Um, Mary Surratt being one of them. Um, Although her role is actually somewhat questionable, but uh, certainly there were Catholics involved. Uh, Her son John was definitely involved in the plot. Um, And so there were Catholics involved, and yet this was spun into being uh, primarily or predominantly or exclusively a kind of Catholic conspiracy that had the official involvement of the Catholic Church, uh, groups like the Jesuits you mentioned. Well, the Jesuits had no connection whatsoever to the assassination, to to the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln, other than, you know, very indirectly through maybe, you know, running Georgetown College or something, one of the conspirators attended, something like that. Right. Um, But no, no real connection, no connection, obviously, to the papacy. Um, uh, or to American bishops or to to the Vatican or anything like that. But um, once this idea gets planted, um, people for for ulterior motives sometimes, you know, can can spin these out of control. Um, And and all of those connections were made, uh, most of them without any evidence. But uh, the idea was, again, going back to this uh, anti-immigrant, sentiment, the idea that Catholicism was foreign to to true Americanism. Um, and so the idea that the Catholic Church was undermining, you know, the real America uh, that, that was given to us by the founders and the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln being part of that project yeah. by, by uh, removing this great president um, who had preserved the union and by and by thereby undermining the political stability of the American regime. What about the relationship between Catholic missionary efforts and uh, indigenous Americans, uh, Native Americans, Aboriginal Americans, whatever phrase you want to use? Uh, Did we have much? I know uh, in the north we had the Jesuit black robes uh, in what we call Canada today. Um, But as you went in the settlement of the west, uh, did Catholic missions play much of a role 
Yeah, they did. Uh, Catholic missionaries have been very important throughout the history of American interaction with uh, Native American or indigenous tribes, peoples of the United States. Um, I tell some of those stories in a few of these chapters. Uh, in, in the West or in the Midwest in particular, chapter 21, which uh, focuses on the Battle of Wounded Knee or sometimes called the Wounded Knee Massacre, mm-hmm. Um, and there was a Catholic mission there uh, uh, nearby where the Battle of Wounded Knee happened. It was, and it was interestingly, it's called it's called the Drexel Mission because oh uh, the gosh, funding really? for the mission came from St. Catherine Drexel, the wow. Philadelphia heiress who, uh, who who became a Catholic sister um, and donated her fortune to largely uh, to lots of Catholic projects, but especially to Catholic mission projects. And she was especially concerned with groups that had been marginal in uh, in Catholic missionary efforts up to that point, in particular, uh, black uh, African-Americans, black Catholics, um, and also uh, Native Americans. And mm-hmm. so she funded a lot of missions across the United States. And uh, one near Wounded Knee, the Drexel Mission, was one of those. So, yeah, Catholic priests, uh, not only the black robes, you know, in uh, uh, French Jesuits and Recollects and others um, in French North America, um, but but also uh, uh, other Catholic missionaries, priests, uh, really across the country. These were, in many cases, these were the first uh, non-Native Americans to learn Native American languages, which are notoriously difficult. Hmm. Uh, they created dictionaries that, that, that were used for decades afterward. Um, they understood and recorded the cultures of these uh, Native tribes. Um, and the historians, uh, anthropologists are still using that, that documentation from Catholic missionaries to help to recover and to understand uh, the character of these indigenous tribes that, that would otherwise be lost. Nicholas Black Elk, um, I happened to come across a documentary uh, focusing on him oh, a year or two ago, and uh, his conversion, um, now here's a, a Lakota medicine man, um, talk to me about his stature uh, within uh, the Lakota and also his relationship to the church. Yeah, one of many fascinating figures in this book. He's in that same chapter, the Battle of Wounded Knee, because he was present at that battle, actually uh, injured during the battle. Um, But he had uh, converted to Catholicism, as you say, was an important figure uh, in the Lakota tribe, and then became an important figure in... uh, in, among the Catholic Lakotas, because he worked as a catechist, his cause for canonization has actually been opened. It is uh, also okay. He was, yeah, yeah, it, it is. I'm not quite sure at what stage that is. It's kind of hard to keep track of those things, but um, but his cause has been opened. Uh, he remained a devout Catholic throughout his life, as I say, a catechist, which which in which on the Indian reservation was a very important position, uh, because Indian reservations have Indian uh, sorry Catholic missions on Indian reservations have have always suffered from a shortage of, of clergy uh, to work on. On them, and so the catechist kind of played that role of of educating uh, uh, Catholic children and uh, of training converts and, and all of that kind of thing, leading devotions and so forth. Uh, so Nicholas Black Elk played that role. Um, he remained about Catholic as I, as I said, a really interesting figure because he's he's gained a lot of attention and interest from. Uh, from from non Catholics, from secular right. historians who are interested in the Lakota culture and in Lakota religion, and he's seen as, uh, because he was a medicine man, he's seen as a major figure in that world, 
Um, but a lot of times they, I don't know if they don't know, or they just ignore <laughs> the fact that, uh, that, you know, he, he was a professed Catholic, uh, throughout, throughout the final decades of his life. And, and he, he never abandoned the Catholic faith. And so he's re- this really interesting figure kind of bringing these two worlds together. A, a great example of true enculturation yeah. of the Catholic faith, uh, within, uh, what, what appeared to many to be a fundamentally, uh, a culture that was fundamentally hostile, uh, to Christianity. Yeah. I mean, it was funny because I, Years ago, I would see this uh, volume, Black Elk Speaks, in New Age stores and things like that. <laughs> and then I found out years later that uh, Black Elk was, in fact, a Catholic. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's right. He, yeah, his, his, uh, the Black, Black Elk Speaks was uh, yeah, often viewed by people as a kind of, uh, again, a kind of window into Native American religion. Right, that right. Black Elk was a spokesman for uh, the, the ancient Lakota faith. And in a way, that's true. Um, but again, just glosses over the fact that he's really he's bringing that ancient faith uh, in in a in a very orthodox, valid yeah. way into the Catholic faith that he is he's fully assimilated into. Yeah, uh, I'm curious about the the apparent fascination with Catholics in the mid 20th century, um, prior to the Second Vatican Council, uh, through the Great Depression era. With the great uh, the, the the Hollywood films that give us pictures of, you know, Boys Town, and uh, Spencer Tracy, uh, we have Bing Crosby playing Father Flanagan. Where do you, we seem the anti-Catholic bias that was so prevalent earlier seems to have been um, set aside at least for a while. What? Why was that, or is that just illusory? Uh, no, it's a good question. I've actually struggled with that question. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. I do think there was a lessening of anti-Catholicism. I do think that um, the, the, the predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly positive portrayal of Catholics in popular movies during that era in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, I do think that's indicative of something real going on, that the culture was... Uh, in a fundamental way, more friendly toward Catholicism during that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in part, it's simply because Catholics had been, to some extent, assimilated, and Catholics were yeah. accepted uh, to, to, to some extent, again, not wholly or fully or, or in a lasting way, but uh, were uh, accepted in, in the broader American culture. In part, it was also a deliberate effort by Catholics. Uh, Catholics played an, an important role in Hollywood, in the film industry, uh, beginning in that era, um, <clears throat> there, there have been books written about, uh, you know, the, um, the Catholic, uh, they were kind of used pejoratively the censorship boards. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, these that's right. Catholic yeah. organizations that a- attempted to affect, uh, the Hollywood treatment of, of Catholic themes and morality and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that kind of going into the, to, to this phenomenon of a favorable treatment of Catholics in movies during that period. Yeah. Kevin, outstanding. Um, let's talk again. We shouldn't wait so long next time. This has got you got so many great stories here. So we'll, we'll talk. I again. agree, Al. All right, Kevin. Good to talk to you. We'll talk soon. Dr. Kevin Schmeising, Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History.